The reading is from um, the Gospel according to Matthew, chapter 5, verses 31-32. It has been said anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, makes her the victim of adultery, and anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Marta. It's a nice long reading, isn't it? Um, There's a lot to unpack. Uh, My name is Jack. I'm part of the staff team here at Christchurch. And it's great to be with you this evening to consider what Jesus is saying through this um, fairly short and fairly tricky passage. I'll be honest, um, when I read on the rotor a few months ago that Louise had got I am the light of the world and I had got marital conflict and divorce, I wasn't like, woo! Um, I'm an unmarried man uh, with no close family, and luckily, having been divorced, that's, that's not happened to me. Um, but I'm hopeful, though, that that means that my interpretation of what Jesus is saying through this passage is unbiased from personal hurt and hopefully made relevant to those of you who, like me, haven't had to come close to this topic. Jesus has lots to say in these 45 words. There is much to be found as we delve into the background of these two sentences. Um, And it's relevant, I believe, to all of us. So let me just pray as we begin. Father God, I thank you for your word, and I thank you that we can explore it together this evening. And I pray for those of us for whom this is a really close topic, that there would be real peace as we think about it. And for those for whom it feels far away, I pray that you would um, yeah, show us uh, how we can help those we know and how we can deal with it if we ever have to come close to it. Amen. So today I'm going to um, focus on two things. I'm going to focus on one thing that I believe Jesus is preaching against in this passage and one thing that I believe Jesus is preaching for. That's one thing he's preaching against and one thing he's preaching for. But before we look at those two things, we need to kind of delve into two levels of context that I just think we need to understand before we even start. Firstly, Jesus is preaching a sermon of which we're only looking at part of tonight. This isn't an isolated bit of scripture or an isolated bit of teaching on its own. It's part of a greater whole. There are other parts of scripture where somebody addresses this in a kind of little wrapped box. In Matthew 19, Jesus is asked a question and he does a little bit of isolated teaching on this topic. But in this context, there is a flow and a sequence to what he's saying. And out of necessity, we are chopping it up and preaching on it bit by bit. But we need to acknowledge the fact of the sequence. And some churches would put this passage along with last week as we looked at adultery, probably for kind of brevity and to make the sermon series not last a million weeks, but also potentially to try and skim over this this little 45 words. Um, And I think it's really important and really good to get to the root of every single thing that Jesus mentions in this sermon. So he's just come from talking about lust and adultery uh, and then anger and hatred And it kind of follows now, almost like a sequence, almost like an equation. I think it should come up on the screen. One more, Ellen, thank you. That now he comes to divorce, and then he's going to follow by talking about broken promises. He's like he's saying, actually, if if, if you're full of hate and anger and conflict arises, and you're going to commit adultery, then this is what you do if we get there. You could slap a massive equal sign in the middle. There's an order and sequence to what Jesus is saying, and we're only looking at part of it. 
The second bit of context is that Jesus is preaching to people who know more than us when it comes to Jewish case law. When Jesus says, and if you can go on to the next slide, Ellen, when Jesus says, anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce, we don't all automatically hear and recall the, the rest of Deuteronomy 24 in the way that we might recall the words of a song by Abba or Queen. So, for example, and I need you to come with me on this, if I sang, don't stop me now, you'd sing. Very good, very good. If I sang, you are the dancing queen. It's, I hope you're doing this at home. But it also happens across kind of the age gap. So if I went, watermelon sugar. Yeah, that, was that, that was the downloaders, that wasn't it. If I went, I won't do anything for love. There we go, lovely. Now, we know what's coming next. We know when we hear these lines from songs, what is happening. It's like when a friend of mine accidentally says a phrase from Les Mis, and I sing half of it really obnoxiously. <laughs> That's the students laughing, they know me. Um, when the people were listening to Jesus, they knew what he was saying here. They knew what he was saying. They, they heard scripture rather than read it, and in most cases, memorized it. Most of those people listening would know the whole of the Torah. And I don't think probably anyone in this room, bar maybe Brian, could recite all of Genesis to Deuteronomy on command. And so we need to remember that they know more than us. When they listen to what we think is quite a small piece of scripture, they recall this, if we can go on to the next slide. And I'll, and I'll read it in full, even though it's, even though it's long. Because when Jesus quotes this, they're thinking this. If a man marries a woman who becomes displeasing to him because he finds something indecent, that's the bit to underline, something indecent about her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce, gives it to her and sends her from his house, and if after she leaves his house, she becomes the wife of another man, and her second husband dislikes her and writes her a certificate of divorce, gives it to her and sends her from his house, or if he dies, then her first husband, who divorced her, is not allowed to marry her again after she has been defiled. That would be detestable in the eyes of the Lord. Do not bring sin upon the land the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance. And you thought EastEnders these days wasn't realistic. What Jesus is quoting here isn't command, but case law. This is a situation that happened, and the people at the time had to interpret it. In the instance that this happens, you do this. And they know when they hear this that it's part of a fierce debate. They know. It's a bit like in law films where they say, oh, remember the case of A versus B, and they all kind of nod. And I mean, I say law films, it's legally blonde. It's the only one I've seen. But they, they all know what they're talking about. You know, they're talking, yeah, El, Elle Woods doesn't because she hasn't done the pre-reading, but they all know when they talk about A versus B, they know what's talking about. It's like if I suddenly mention Brexit, dare I at the moment, um, you know as a British audience in 2022, who the leading politicians are, or the main ideas. And actually, in, in, in a slightly more accurate way, it would be like if I suddenly said, strong and stable, or take back control, or dare I say, anti-growth coalition. As soon as that phrase is said, there is a bed of context underneath that we, as people in this time, understand. And we need to acknowledge that the people back then understand the reference that Jesus is making. And they are aware of two schools of thought when it comes to interpreting Deuteronomy 24. 
So a generation before Jesus, there were two rabbis that had opposing views on the something indecent that justifies divorce. There were, there were two views. Um, so one of them was called Shammai, and one of them was called Halal. So if we were in it legally blonde, we'd say it was the case of Shammai versus Halal. Shammai was more conservative um, and said that the something indecent referred here only refers to adultery or sexual immorality because that ruptures the one flesh union of marriage. Whereas Hillel was more liberal and basically said anything goes. If you, can, you can divorce someone for any reason. That something indecent could be anything. In, in some Jewish writings, supporters of Halal said that that simply could be that the wife spoiled a meal or the man simply found a slightly more attractive woman. It's basically an any reason divorce. So there's no prizes for understanding that the people of the day much preferred, or at least the men of the day, should I say, much preferred the Hillelite way of thinking. They much preferred that. And so when Jesus enters into this debate, the debate of Shimei versus Hillel, I think that first and foremost, he is preaching against female oppression. Jesus is preaching against female oppression. Because in those days, men would go for the young, attractive women, and women, sadly by necessity, would have to go for the richer and more powerful men. And so that means that divorce ultimately completely and utterly favours men because men get richer and more powerful and women don't get any younger. Jesus is talking into this context. And not only that, a man could claim back a wife and child years after divorcing them. So a woman could get to be thrown out by her husband because he's found a newer model and she's got a child and she's out on the streets. And then what, what does she do? What does she do? Who's going to marry her knowing that actually they could, they could marry her and take on this child and then in a few years, the original husband could claim her back. It's like a gross reverse warranty. And this is the situation Jesus is preaching into, not modern day discussions about divorce. He's saying to the blokes, stop screwing over women. Stop using them as playthings. And if you want to get a divorce, give her a certificate of divorce to make it clear that you're not going to claim her back that she can move on and start a family properly elsewhere. And in this argument, Jesus is on the side of the Shammaiites, which is quite hard to say, saying that this indecency, the something indecent identified in Deuteronomy 24, is about sexual sin, it's about the rupture of that one flesh union. Jesus is preaching against female oppression. So that's all good for back then, but what does that say for us today? Can Christians only get a divorce in the case of adultery? Now, this is a question that will provoke many responses from different theological groups. Um, and so if it's something that interests you, do, do go and read into it. My, my reading into it suggests the following. Jesus is preaching against female oppression in relationship, but Jesus is preaching for a faithful honouring of relationship against female oppression, but for a faithful honouring. Now, Jesus sees divorce as a last resort. And by being a last resort, that means it's an option. It's there. In Matthew 19, he says that Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard. And if your hearts are hardened in a relationship, then the blood can't flow and a relationship dies. And if, if a relationship is dead, then it needs closure. It needs a death certificate. It needs burying. And I think this is crucial. Jesus, in his victory on the cross, doesn't proclaim victory over death certificates or funerals. 
We don't sing songs saying, oh, funerals, where are your sting? Jesus proclaims the victory over death. Jesus proclaims the victory over death. And in the same way, Jesus isn't against divorce in in this case, in this situation of case law. He's, He's pointing people in that direction. He's against the death of that relationship. He's against, and he wants to win a victory over the breaking of that marital vow. Jesus knows that divorce is a legal and necessary consequence of the real problem, the breaking of that vow. You know, it's like a corpse being out on the street. It needs sorting out. God is a God of love and forgiveness, life and reconciliation. So, of course, it pains him to see people turn away from the one flesh relationship that he designed for them. And he isn't angry at those who get divorced. He's angry for them. He's deeply hurt and deeply saddened that they have to go through this awful thing. And in many ways, God understands it. Many, many theologians and many scholars would say that God is a divorcee, having undergone the rejection from Israel over and over again, breaking that covenant they'd made. So Jesus is preaching for a faithful honouring in relationship. So back to my original question, does that mean that Christians can only get divorced in the case of adultery? Well, it all rests in Jewish case law, which I find quite interesting, which might make me quite boring. But it's very interesting because it's based on wisdom and deduction and kind of logical sequence. So, for example, in one part of Exodus, it says that if a man neglects a slave wife, but, you know, because he's gone for another slave wife, she can divorce him only if he is neglecting her in the case of food, clothes, and conjugal love. Everybody say conjugal love. Just because it's fun to say. Conjugal love basically means marital love. It's intimacy, it's affection, it's sex, it's all of those things. So, and, it's, and interestingly, it's one of the things that Jewish people would uh, make a vow around in those days. So food, clothes, and conjugal love. And if, if she is duly neglected, then she can leave him. Now, it figures that if a slave wife can divorce her husband, then surely so can a free wife. And then if a free wife can do that, then surely so could a free husband. So that means in Jewish case law, a divorce is acceptable if one party feels substantially neglected or abused. And to be honest, in that kind of scenario, it feels like it's done case by case. Um, As you can see how easy it would be to twist or misinterpret. Jesus is talking specifically about adultery here in Matthew 5 because he's preaching into the case of Shimei versus Hillel. And there is more to this divorce thing that I can talk about now, and Paul talks about it later on in the epistles. But for Jesus, I think this is crucial. The only thing that marriage cannot survive is hardness of heart. Marriage can survive tragedy. It can survive loss. It can survive chronic illness. It can survive even an affair if there is true repentance. But if the heart is hardened, there are no embers to blow on to rekindle the flame. It's gone. And divorced or not, we all know what happens when a relationship reaches a point where our hearts are hardened. And I think we can learn a lot here about faithful honouring of relationships, whether romantic or not. We've all been to a point where, in friendships where we just know how the other person is going to react, or we know exactly what they're like and we cut them out. Or we're a bit done by the way our boyfriend or girlfriend is treating us, and so we dump them. Or we, we don't speak to our, our mum or dad or a child anymore because of something they've done. We know what it's like to have a relationship that has become hardened. Now, in a marriage, you promise to become one flesh, to stick together through it all. 
And now to give a brief theology of marriage from an unmarried person who has read a few books and listened to quite a few podcasts on divorce, I live a wild life, I'll summarize it to these two things, friendship and formation. Say friendship and formation. There we go. So marriage is about friendship. It's about having a best friend, a teammate, someone to spend time with intentionally. And it's, and it's the only bond which, which Christians believe is strong enough to hold sexual intimacy. But marriage is also about formation, about having a shared vision, a direction in which you're going together. Um, but also a space where you uncover both the good and bad in each other and hopefully help each other become more like Jesus. It's about friendship and formation. And in, in this relationship, Jesus places a higher standard because because it's a covenant, not a contract. In a contract, the deal is you get this and I get this. But in a covenant, a promise is made to give up freedom for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health. And this is the real place where we test forgiveness and reconciliation. The place where actually the consequence of a broken relationship is bigger, not just because the breaking of that marriage vow is sinful, but because the hurt and the pain and the consequence is deeper. Divorce hurts, and the consequences are heavy upon the couple, upon their family, and especially upon kids who are involved. And this is why adultery is mentioned so much when it comes to divorce in Scripture, because it's the volatile and intentional breaking of that marriage vow. As Simon said last week when we were talking about adultery, it's a move, a move towards selfish love rather than the selfish, selfless love, sorry, we are called to in a marriage. I'll say that again, but properly. It's a move towards selfish love. That's what that breaking of that vow is. It's a move towards selfish love, rather than the selfless love we're called to in a marriage. Now, I was actually at a wedding recently of the lovely Matt Ben, who used to work here at Christchurch on the student team. And the father of the bride, in his speech, spoke about how our culture is trying to get better at fixing things that are broken, not just throwing things away uh, when they break, to try and be more sustainable. And he said that marriage is a gorgeous example of fixing things when it breaks and strengthening it, becoming stronger. And it made me think of how much we hate single-use plastic. We, we hate single-use plastic, but we seem to love, as a culture, single-use relationships. We seem to hate the idea of using a spoon once and then throwing it in the bin, but we don't mind someone coming into our life and then as soon as they say something wrong, we cut them out. Or it's a bit too hard-hitting, it's a little bit too far and they're unfriended. And actually, that opinion is a lie. It's a lie, the idea that relationships can be single-use. And there are, there are other lies that we believe in our culture. One psych psychologist, a guy called Jonathan Haidt, suggests that our culture believes the following lies about love, and I hope they're going to come on the screen. So these are the four lies that we as a culture believe about love, according to this um, psychologist. Firstly, true love is passionate love that never fades. Secondly, if you're in true love, then you should marry that person, obviously. Three, if love ends, you should leave that person, because it wasn't true love. And finally, if you can find the right person you'll have true love forever. I don't need to read that again for you to understand that this is obviously very idealistic, but obviously untrue. Our culture loves love and the idea of true love, but it's a chasing after the wind. For Jesus, marriage is companionate, not passionate. It's about a choice to be with someone forever. Jesus is preaching for a faithful honouring of marriage vows, but also of all relationships. He is for reconciliatory conversations. He is for taking the hit so that a relationship can be regrown. He is for a radical and recognisable love that forgives all things. 
He doesn't want our commitment-phobic culture to find it out when something isn't right, but to repent, to turn around. How can I make this work? And in all these things, I think we often ask the wrong questions. We go, are they good for me? Rather than, am I good for them? Are they showing me Jesus rather than, am I showing them Jesus? Did they respond in the right way in that argument, or did I respond in the right way? And that's not just in a marriage, is it? We see the fault in others, but don't try to hold ourselves accountable. It's so easy to try and deflect. So as I um, come into land, how do we respond? Firstly, we must remember that divorce is a huge issue, something that I can only skim the surface of this evening. It's, it's a constant source of pain and hurt, and we, and we can't skim over it. And if this is something that is still raw and real to you, then we would love to pray for you. Uh, as we come to sing, we will have some people over here who would love to pray with you. God is a God of healing the broken, and he wants to meet with you. And it's, and it's right, too, that we acknowledge that it's not only the two direct parties involved that are affected by divorce. And so if thinking about this has brought up untapped and unfelt emotion around the divorce of a close family member or parents, then please do come and pray with someone on the team. But more than that, do chat to us. Uh, do find someone who looks at home here. Do grab James or me or the vicar Simon. Um, and we would love to chat. We would love to point you in the direction of wise people who would love to talk to you. Secondly, it would be remiss of me to not offer prayer to those who are in marriages or friendships that are struggling. It may be that you're worried that you're going to lose that, and, it, and that's, that's scary. If so, we'd love you to come and pray. We'd love to pray strength into your relationship, whether that's a friend or a spouse. And we'd love to pray wisdom for you to know how to move forward. And thirdly, as I was praying for this evening, I thought, gosh, we need to pray for people whose hearts are hardened in relationships. Because we all know how that feels. It might be with a, f- a close family member. It might be with a mum or a dad or a child. It might be with uh, a spouse or a best friend or a friend from long ago who you just haven't spoken to because something happened. And I, I really sense that God wants to um, change hardened hearts this evening. Uh, it says in Ezekiel, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I want to pray that into relationships this evening. And finally, if there's anything else you would like prayer for, if there's something from last week as we spoke about adultery and lust, if there's unfinished business there, or if there's anything in your life, a new job, uh, a a new anything, an old job, an old anything, if there's anything you want prayer for, we would love to pray with you. But I'd love to invite the band up and we're going to sing. If you're able, do please stand. I just would love to pray over us. Father God, I thank you that you are a relational God, a God who exists in relationship, and a God who loves and calls us to relationships, whether they're marital or not. And I pray, Father, over us now that this faithful honouring of relationship doesn't just happen with the people around us, but happens with you. And I pray, Father, that as we uh, sing and worship and as we pray together, that we would be able to do business with you, that we would faithfully honour you so that we can faithfully honour the relationships that are around us. Thank you, Jesus, for your love. And I pray that that love would pour out of us into the people around us. Amen.
Let's sing and do come and pray.